This is Inside the Box. Hello, everybody. It's nice to be back. This is Trevor Barrett, and I am here, as always, with my great friend, David Blakesley. David, how are you doing? I'm doing really good, Trevor. Uh, yeah, it is always a fun time getting together and keeping this little uh, side project going here and making some uh, <laughs> making some advance on this daunting pile of Criterion box sets that we're both staring at. Like, okay, we're going to talk about all this, right? But yeah, I'm really happy to join you this morning again. Well, and this time we've been wondering how to cover the the particular sets that that came from the World Cinema Project, uh, Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project, and uh, we have an idea of how to break these up so we don't do one you know six hour episode <laughs> to cover each box set over time. And so, listeners, today we are excited to crack open uh, the you know tear off the cellophane and see what's inside. Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project number one. Uh, six films from around the world and from various uh, time periods in in the history of cinema. But we aren't going to talk about each of them today. Instead, we're going to break this up into three episodes. Uh, today, we'll talk about the first two films in the set. Next, uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll return uh, talking about the next two, and then there are two more for two weeks after that. Uh, does that sound like a good plan, David? <laughs> That's the plan. Yeah, it's more than an idea. We are doing it. <laughs> so uh, we're putting it into action. And definitely, um, I think, to, to for the better. You know, we even talked about maybe doing mm-hmm. a two-part episode, which kind of takes me back to our days of the Eclipse Viewer, where we, I think there were a couple bigger sets that we broke into two or three pieces because mm-hmm. there was just so much to digest there. I think of especially of the louis mal documentaries where you yep. had you know three kind of distinct styles or or topics if you will in that one set and so uh yeah this is definitely giving these films a lot more um due consideration because yeah cramming them into one or even two episodes i think would have been a disservice uh other than the fact that they're all collected together they don't really have a lot in common whereas even with a an eclipse box with maybe four or five films mm-hmm. you've got one director a story being told this really is kind of a, a sampling, a buffet of uh, you know six different nations, uh, six different eras, and uh, you know. So I think to to slow the pace down a little bit, uh, you know, I've got plenty to say. But you're right; even mm-hmm. a two part breakdown would have really extended the episodes, and I think would maybe forced us to rush through them just a little bit more than they deserve. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I'm also kind of excited. Because I get the the benefit of of being with you for three times in the next uh, month, and well, I like that. I That's like that. Very heartwarming, <laughs> and certainly the the appreciation and enjoyment is shared on my end. So yeah, definitely looking forward to uh, really diving in. Like I've I've seen five of the six films in this set, but obviously these rewatches, as is always the case, opened mm-hmm. up some new dimensions and insights for me, and uh, you know just enhanced my respect and and. Uh, gratitude that they've been presented in this very classy way so let's go back what is the martin scorsese world cinema project and how did this set come to come to be and it's a set that i remember quite well when it when it was announced and when it showed up under my Christmas tree back in 2013. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes. So, but we can go back to the World Cinema Foundation. Um, do you, would you introduce that just a little bit for our, our sure. listeners, David? Sure. Actually, you know the the project is pretty nicely explained in a 
pretty substantial essay by Kent Jones, which comes in the nice little bound booklet uh, that that is part of the the box set. It's uh, six films that uh, are kind of sampled from this kind of work that was done. The, the The Film Foundation was Scorsese's kind of film restoration project, you know, and you know, a lot of the titles that they focused on in the early days of, of the film foundation were, you know, the art house classics, you know, the Bergmans, the Kurosawas, the Fellinis, uh, the stuff, stuff that Janus films and later the Criterion Collection kind of built their reputation on. Uh, but then there was a recognition that, you know, cinema was much broader than the uh, European art house and, you know, Kurosawa and Ozu for some Japanese flavor thrown in there. And they recognized that there were many very outstanding films that had been made over the previous century or so that were not only under-recognized and undervalued, but also in danger of being lost permanently because, you know, a lot of these nations don't have either the resources or the film culture to say, we've got to really preserve these elements. They're fragile, they're, they're, they're perishable. And if they're not well protected and, and restored and preserved, then uh, they're just not going to be available anymore or available in, in conditions that are so deteriorated that it's hardly worth watching. And you really don't get a sense of the, of the significance or the, of the excellent work that went into their creation. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a project of gathering together all of the elements, doing the restoration work. Uh, sometimes those negatives are gone. In fact, that often that is the case. So they've got maybe one or two prints that they're working with, but doing all the digital magic to, to you know, uh, erase the blemishes and all of that. But really, this is uh, uh, an ongoing project. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, as most listeners probably know, there are two more volumes that someday we'll get to, um, you know, but, but we're going to start on this one for now and then maybe go back to other types of box sets in between. Uh, so this isn't like a commitment to do all three of the volumes, um, you know, in one continuous sequence, but uh, there's a good possibility there may be more because they have not stopped. Um, but these were the six that they chose to, uh, you know, to kind of put it out there and this was released as number one which implies that there will be more on the way and like i say they've they've at least fulfilled the the promise with with those <laughs> two supplementary volumes i mean that's kind of my first my first glance at it. i don't know if there's more details you want to add trevor i haven't like really studied the mechanics or the structure but that's that's basically my understanding of it yeah yeah, yeah for sure and and just looking at kent jones essay it it started in 2007, and this set came out in 2013. And so in that period of time from 2007 to 2013, the World Cinema Project had either fully restored or participated in the restoration of 19 feature films. Mm -hmm. And so this is six of them. We all And there's a website you can go to to see what, they've, what they had done. So at the time when we kind of knew this was maybe going to come out, I remember people speculating, oh, which six do you think they'll choose? And you know, they, they chose this, th these six that, that we'll be discussing. But then we've got another set of six and another set of six. And some of the films that the World Cinema Project has restored uh, have been released just as standalone, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, Blu-ray releases. So they'll probably never be a part of one of these sets. Um, but they, you know, they're not all just little curiosities as they can feel sometimes. And so I think that's another reason we wanted to break this up into, you know, three episodes, because I'll admit when you get a box like this, 
or okay, I'll I'll stop saying you. When I get a box like this, <laughs> yeah. there's the temptation to treat it as oh, there's a nice set of you know little curiosities from around the world. That'll be nice someday when I want to be a little more culturally aware of you know the little films that these people made, which is super you know embarrassing. Yeah, to, kind of condescending, a little pat on the mm-hmm. head there, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I'm a little bit ashamed of that response. Um, I was excited about this set, but I did think these were probably minor minor films that otherwise didn't deserve a different treatment. Like they were saved as an act of grace, you know. <laughs> well, there's even but, a meme that's going around on social media right now. It's a guy. It's a one frame says boutique labels. Uh, the next frame is a kind of a water tank with a big leak coming out of it. Says terrible movie, and then the third frame is slapping a you know a, a patch of duct tape on it, saying "put it in a box set." You know, so it's like the mm-hmm. idea that these and and, and I, I will admit, I, well, I will agree with the basics of it. There's a lot of really fancy box sets being released these days by many different labels, full of films that to me feel and look like they're pretty mediocre. (laughs) So uh, I know some people, you know, enjoy them and I'm not really here to, you know, dump on anybody for that, but um, you know, sometimes the packaging outweighs the the actual artistic merits of the product being put out there. So uh, again, just a, just a funny thought, but I Mm -hmm. I would certainly say that does not apply. That meme does Uh, not apply to these sets. These are not at all. These are important works that have been very intelligently and, and lovingly curated uh, for, for very uh, plausible, very defensible reasons. And, and as we've also seen uh, two of the films from this set have been released in their own standalone editions because uh, Criterion wanted to make them available to people who might just say, hey, I want that particular movie, and maybe even to elevate their profile to say, this is bigger than just a kind of a, you know, catalog filler, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I celebrated it when Tukibuki came out. They sent me a review copy, and yeah, I'd seen the film, and it's not that different. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of extra material on that disc, that standalone mm-hmm. disc, but I was so excited because I thought, oh, good. If anybody felt the way that I did, they can now rest assured that Tukibuki is is an important um, artistic exploration of a of a you know a, a, a really complicated nuanced exploration of a culture that I knew very little about you know and still don't know a ton about but it was a nice introduction and really well done and important to to that country's we'll get into it but to that country's own cinema history to its own you know development of ideas about itself and to film you know uh, to 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 what we even just just looking at it from the perspective of how do we make films what are some unique techniques and all of that i think tukibuki is is right up there. It came out at about the same time as Celine and Julie go boating. And I watched them like one night after the Mm. other. And I Mm. thought, Oh man, Mm. there's a lot of, of fun little similarities going on here as far as disjointed narratives and, and just recognize, you know, I was excited that that happened, but I'm also excited. We do have these box sets that, you know, if you can get over the, the stupid, initial reaction like i i did um there's yeah. you know you can just look forward to having them and and these sets have been some of my favorite releases that they've ever done and have some of my favorite films that i've ever seen uh within them so excited to get to it and like you said you know there were 19 in 2013 when this set came out and they've just continued to do their work 
so there's there's I don't even know how many they have now. I probably should have looked, but there are plenty of, of films in the pipeline, um, both being released and and available through the World Cinema Foundation, as well as um, you know ones like I said before that they've been releasing. Criterion Collection has been releasing um, over the last several years, and it's been delightful. Probably a good uh, you know. Uh good idea to put a link in the show notes as they say you know let's let's find that information because mm-hmm. i'd be curious to know what else might be in the pipeline uh i know if, like uh, memories of underdevelopment is a good example of one of those um worlds in the project films that was put out on its own release and probably like i say will mm-hmm. not be introduced into a new box set so yeah it'd be great to have a kind of a you know up-to-date lineup or or listing of, of what those film titles are yeah, I, I, we'll do that. And maybe I'll try and do that too between this recording and the next one. And maybe yeah. we can talk just a little bit about that in the next uh, the next episode. It'll be it'll be our little introduction to those two films <laughs> Excellent. as we get back into, you know, warm up our voices and mm-hmm. <laughs> with that. Mm-hmm. But today we'll be talking about two films that that, um, you know, surface appearance look like they would have nothing to do with each other. Um, we've got 1973's Tuki Buki. Um, from Senegal and directed by Jibril Diop Mambetti. And then we have a 1936 film from Mexico, you know, nearly 40 years before this, uh, very, very different um, in many ways. This is Redes, uh, which is credited here to Fred Zinneman and Emilio Gomez Muriel, but there's a lot of other collaborators in this that we'll probably talk about too for Redes. But the, those are the two films we'll be discussing. We'll start with the first film in the set, Tuki Buki. Yeah, basically, we're taking a one Blu-ray at a time. These are the two mm-hmm. films that are like on the same Blu-ray disc and in the or in DVD the set, yeah, or two DVDs, kind of in their own <laughs> little sort of folder inside the mm-hmm. larger box. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So even though Criterion has never, you know, gone back to the dual format for for their standalone titles. The World Cinema Project volumes that have come out ever since they, you know, discontinued that, they've continued to be dual format. So you get a Blu-ray that has two films on one side of the fold, and on the other side you get both of the movies on their own DVDs. So we'll be we'll be just stepping through them, you know, little box by little box. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm looking forward to this, David. These are two yeah. um, two really interesting films, and I think Tuki Buki in particular is a masterpiece. Oh so yeah, I'm excited absolutely. to mm-hmm. to get into it. Maybe maybe a little bit of a warning um, for anyone who's <laughs> like, "Oh, I'll go and jump into Tuki Buki." Yeah, um, it there's there's various uh, things that happen there. It's kind of bloody and it has a lot of animal, um, you know, violence. I guess you'd maybe yeah. Put it I won't some... say I won't say animal cruelty unless mm-hmm. you are a very strict vegetarian, in which case perhaps that is a an opinion that is more justified, mm-hmm. but. Any of us who eat a burger or, uh, you know, have meat in other form, well, this kind of thing that you see on screen happens every day, thousands, maybe millions of times per day. But it is pretty jarring because it's right up, right off the bat, you know, almost the, one of the mm-hmm. very opening scenes. And then there are other scenes where it's not just animals being butchered, but you're really seeing it up close, hand to hand, knives on throats blood i mean i don't want to be gratuitous about it but they're they do not hold a whole lot back in terms of the the, the slaughter of animals um oxen yeah. and goats um and it happens several times throughout the film mostly in the first half but uh 
you know, be prepared because you're right. That, that, that is a, that is a trigger warning that I think is very legitimate. Some people may not be able to get into this film because of that, or they may just want to skip those scenes. Yeah. So with that though, let's, let's get into Tuki Buki. Let's, let's talk about this film. Um, it was the first film that I put in back in 2013, you know, Maybe it was maybe it was Christmas Day for all I know, <laughs> and I was confused as could be, oh, but yeah, absolutely yeah. mesmerized. Also, trying to figure out what this what this film was about and how it was about it because it's very disjointed. The the you know you're watching things that don't necessarily seem to have a lot to do with each other. It's, it was only on a rewatch with some help that I started to kind of make the connections and understand who was who, you know, that were kind of side mm-hmm. characters. And, uh, but the, the main thing always stood out, but the main thing is kind of a, I don't know, maybe more of a plot mechanic that just makes it easier for uh, the film to explore so much else about Senegal in post-colonial times, you know, what was going on in the the culture when it came to, um, when it came to the traditions that some of the older people had, or or you know some of the the rural people had, versus the modernity, versus the desires to get out and go somewhere else, because there's a false hope of of a better place, you know, maybe in maybe in Paris, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and so the general premise is you've got two young people, uh, uh, uh you know, they're boyfriend and girlfriend and it's a uh, Morty is the boy and Anta is the girl and you know Anta is a college student um uh, and so that's kind of the age group we're talking about but they're looking to get out together and go to to party party mm-hmm. party <laughs> <laughs> which plays all through the film in a very yeah. you know very uh clippy and disjointed way so (laughs) well and and that musical bit just to kind of center that a little bit that's it's a it's a vocal piece that's sung by josephine baker who was a black woman from the united states who relocated to paris and became a very celebrated entertainer so you have a a bit of a cross-cultural sort of thing happening there and i think i think she was like what the 30s or 40s maybe into the 50s i i'm a little rusty or a little vague on the dates there but she was a a woman of african descent you know by way of the united states and i don't know a lot about her personal history but you know the fact that she is a black woman singing about the glories of paris um perhaps serves as a point of connection for these two young people and also, their their idea of going to Paris is very impulsive. There's a scene a, a bit about a half an hour or so into the film where uh, after we've had this kind of opening sequence of really, it's just like life in Senegal, these little vignettes, mm-hmm. scenes, uh, cityscapes, and, and you know we can maybe go back to that. But basically, yeah. uh, Maury tells Anta, there's a ship leaving for Europe tomorrow. Well, let's get on it. Let's get some money and go. So this is a not only a, a, an escapist plan, but a very impulsive, kind of reckless, poorly thought out one, which makes a difference as we get towards the conclusion. But I'm not trying to, to skip that <laughs> far ahead. So let's maybe focus on the beginning of the film, which really is just, a like I say, a portrait of Senegal, of Dakar in particular, the, the capital. And if you're a little, um, you know, a little rusty on your African geography, Senegal is the 
sort of strip of land at the very farthest western edge of the African continent. So that bit, that big bulge that kind of stands out there, Senegal is just it's that's not a very large country, uh, but it is it is a significant one just from its sort of geographic location. It is kind of like the western frontier of of Africa. Um, and that's probably about as much as I really know about Senegal. I think there had been a strong French uh, colonial presence there. So yeah. their their post-colonial was specifically of the French kind. And of course, we've talked about French colonialism in Algiers and, and uh, you know, the, the war and the, the, the strife that, that occurred in that nation as it struggled to break free from France and, and even, you know, the Kasbah and, and, and all of that. Um, is a part of French movie history, you know, Pepe Lamoco, and we've, we've talked about De Vivier and all, but this is a little further south than that, obviously. And, and, um, you know, just a, a, a nation that's coming into its own. You see, you see lots of signs of it, you know, you see the, the presence of the military and you see, uh, there is some kind of a, you know, if you want to call it aristocracy, uh, there's certainly there's some class structures that have been kind of, probably imported from the colonial era and have persisted because with colonialization, there is a privileged native class that accumulates power and wealth and clout and influence. And even after the, you know, formal ties have been broken, that power class wants to stay in that place of privilege, uh, often to the detriment of their own citizens of with whom they are common in terms of their their culture, their their cultural legacy, all of that, but um, let's let's kind of keep things where they're at, folks. That's that seems to be uh, the operative plan, which then leads to a lot of poverty and displacement from the common rabble who don't really know how they're going to improve their situation in the present status quo, and that's what a lot of, of what's happening here is is uh, Maury and Anta are each in their own way, looking to say, how can I break out of this rut, this limited set of options that life has given me? Maury seems to be, have maybe have grown up as a cattle herder. You know, you see this, this scene of, of a young boy riding on top of an ox uh, as, the, as the herd approaches the camera. And, you know, I've read reviews where there's intimations that that may be a shot of Maury when he was a younger person, or if maybe not him, but hmm. somebody who's, you know, following a very similar path. At this point, he's a little bit of a rebel. Uh, he doesn't really fit in with some of the more um, better, well-educated uh, youth, maybe who, whom have, who have even political revolutionary ideologies. There's that one scene where he's kind of roped in and harassed by a, a bunch of young men in a car. Uh, he's seen as a bit of a rude bumpkin. Uh, his dress, his clothing is dusty, and he he's definitely living on the margins. But his girlfriend, Anta, she is, she's college educated. She wears pants. She doesn't wear the traditional African garb. And so she herself is a bit ostracized, perhaps even from young women of her own generation. You, you don't really see her uh, in kind of the company of others like her, but she's criticized by her mother and uh, her mother's friends for not really fitting the mold. And and she, she and Maury both have um, pretty rough haircuts and just their physical presentation is, is kind of raw, kind of earthy. Well, it's my understanding that the college, uh, you know, revolutionaries who mm-hmm. tie up Maury 
our aunt is classmates mm-hmm. and that there may be a little bit of, you know, hey, we're doing this because we need you to stay away from her. You're not good enough. Right. But they're mocking him, at, you know, and, and but it's it's pretty serious mocking. I mean, that's oh, yeah. humiliating that they, they, they tie him up to the back of their of their truck and and pr- go through town. It's almost like a, a crucifixion or a um, lynching. Image. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, or lynching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, they're, they're kind of like the Sonicles equivalent of frat boys, I suppose you could say. You yeah, know? yeah I and think this so. might not. This isn't a hazing ritual because they're not really bringing him into their own ranks, but they are certainly asserting a dominant power over this guy who just doesn't fit in, and you know has has eyes on one of the women that they feel is more like their property or their their business mm-hmm. to protect or you know provide some insulation around. So Senegal got its independence from France only in 1960, and this film's made, you know, 13 years later, released 13 years later. This is a time when I don't, you know, people are trying to figure out what's the way forward and everybody has their own idea, but also it, the you start with those scenes of Dakar in the slums where everybody's home is a little shack right next to the neighbor's little shack. I mean, those those images right at the beginning, you know, you come from the herd of oxen out in the open land, but all these oxen kind of tied together. And then you go to these, this homescape, you know, this, the, uh, this just little pathways through, through the, um, th- through the various different homes and little stairways that take you up and over to get over to the next, uh, the next road. And it's, there's, there's a lot that this film says we need to deal with so much here. Yeah. You know, it it doesn't necessarily, I don't think judge uh, Maury and Anta for wanting to get away other than it it does suggest that's just a, a pipe dream. Potentially, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, and we can go back to Usman Semben's films from mm-hmm. the 60s, mm-hmm. which are very important, also part of the world cinema um, project that were restored. And, and you got Black Girl that was released on Criterion Blu-ray and Mandabi released on Criterion Blu-ray. Um, those films do a lot to also contextualize the struggles and the idea of, of even getting away to France in Black Girl might not get you anywhere. And in Mandabi as well, there's the there's the the you know the young boy who does get to Paris and and is supposed to be sending home money, but he just kind of cleans the streets every once in a while. You know, it, those films helped contextualize when I did this rewatch of Tuki Buki of oh we're we're dealing with a lot of just there, almost the sense that maybe there is no place that we can get to right now (laughs) right well there's even a criticism by one of the women in an early scene about her son who's who's in france but he never writes home and when he whatever he comes back he's going to come back with a white woman and venereal disease and Mm -hmm. you know so (laughs) so the the idea of getting away is all really kind of despised i mean within the local culture you're a bit of a sellout if you're going to go to europe because you're you know you think you think you're better than us or something like that yeah mm-hmm. you've got the traditionalist that's kind of emblematic of maury's family and mm-hmm. his aunt in particular you know that that she resents that because you know we're we're from here or from dakar and then you've got the revolutionaries you know the educated revolutionaries who also think no we that's what we're fighting against. And so the, right. it's definitely not something, it, it is kind of a look of, I want to escape all of this, including those two forces 
and the socioeconomic issues. Um, the this is just I, I do want to get out, but there's a lot of resentment from from all around. If you have that desire, yeah, yeah. But also, just one other thought I had as you were kind of describing the opening scene of the of the oxen herd and the juxtaposition with those those kind of. Uh, pan shots of of the the dwellings um it's kind of like the people themselves are being herded Mm -hmm. you know in kind of a brutal way and as we see the oxen being led to the abattoir where their their throats are slashed and you see that cutaway shot of you know the other oxen just sort of standing there seeing what's happening and waiting their turn i mean it's it's really pretty terrifying Mm -hmm. uh to see you know the, the moment of death and the the you know you know you feel an empathy for these animals as they realize what's going on and that this is it you know this is the end of their life um it's 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 disturbing because you recognize that in many ways the humans are sort of being treated with the same kind of cavalier mm-hmm. exploitation you know we'll just get what we can out of them and and that's how it is and, and it's certainly not a comedic intercut like you get in say modern times you know or like a a biting satire it's almost like the film starts with okay here's what we think of with senegalese life there's a nice herd of oxen look how look how nice that looks yep and then you lead them in traditional and all that yeah (laughs) yep exactly this nice you know that isn't that a nice quaint pastoral setting and then the slaughterhouse is so brutal and and so filthy looking that you can't help but kind of cringe even before the slaughters begin. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, it's going back and forth, you know, with the the dwellings and the you, you do you just get this sense that this is this is about the people, of course. And I'm sure that's very very deliberate. And maybe, you know, maybe some would say, oh, that's really heavy handed, but it kind of works here because it's just. It's it's a violent, it's a violent film in many ways, you know, on the surface, but it's it's very violent psychologically, um, and that sets that up really well. Um, but let's maybe get into some of the ways this film tells this story, because mm-hmm. it is not straightforward. And it, maybe at the beginning you can go, oh, I see what's going on here. I see mm-hmm. the connection between the oxen and the. And the people, especially when Maury, he rides around on a motorcycle bike that has an ox, you know, head and horns, uh, yeah. a skull on his, on his, um, on his motorbike on the front. So you're like, oh, that's a pretty, pretty nice uh, tie to the oxen. You know, is he the oxen? Um, is he the master of them? Yeah. And it kind of gives them that iconic badass kind of look and feel like <laughs> he's like this, it's kind of a Senegalese easy rider almost, you know, like just yeah. looking around on his bike there, <laughs> revving his engine. He kind of, you know, kind of razzles his aunt there. And, um, she, you know, she's carrying a big uh, tub of water on her head and he kind of, you know, you know, kind of taunts her a little bit and forces her to spill the water. She cusses him out and pulls out the knife. And that's the first evocation of the pari, 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 you know, which yeah, what's uh, up with that? <laughs> so it's just kind of like, you know, he's like, ah, skip you auntie, you know, we're, we're about to blow this joint anyway. So you do get a sense of that kind of, um, and, and there's, you know, allusions in the, in the essays, Bonnie and Clyde, Perot, LeFou. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely saw those, those parallels before they were even mentioned, but 
yeah, it, it is. I mean, that's, that is that structure, you know, young lovers on the run, desperate to make a break for it. Uh, we, we've seen that plot play out, you know, countless times mm-hmm. and it does give, um, you know, first time viewers, that point of access to, okay, I'm in this unusual environment. I don't know anything about Senegal. Don't even where, know where maybe it is located in Africa, but I'm going to live and learn. But, oh yeah, we can relate to this idea of like, let's just jump on the bike and ride. Let's pull the heist, get the easy money and, and live out the dream. It's a bit of a vicarious, uh, low risk fantasy for us to indulge in because we don't face any of the consequences that will come down when plans go awry. Mm-hmm. And there's, it, again, at the beginning, it, I already started to feel like my steps were a little slippery, <laughs> but the film really does start to just go to different places yeah. and then it repeats scenes yeah, and you've already seen. The editing um, and the music, all the mm-hmm. all the technical stuff about how Mambetti puts it together really uh, make that skeleton of a story come alive and, and you know, yeah. certainly bear up under different uh, levels of rewatch and attention to detail once you've got the basic story down. Yeah, because it's one thing to do the the editing where you're intercutting mm-hmm. a, a few scenes together and we're supposed to draw parallels. And that does happen a few times throughout. There's, uh, you know, some more animal slaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more connections made that way. But I find it harder to understand the jarring timeline mm-hmm. um, when it feels like it's going back and forth in time as well and repeating things we, we, we clearly have seen already, you know, it's the same shot. It's not just a different angle. It's we're watching the same, you know, shot of them running down this hill or, you know, the, the, and, and it's harder for me to necessarily understand what's going on with all of that. But man, did I find that intriguing mm-hmm. and captivating and dis- the the disjointing um, nature of that actually affected me quite a bit. Maybe more than if it hadn't been there, it drew me into this film and into the the again the the psychology, I guess, of of these characters who are kind of stuck in a loop in a way, don't mm-hmm. necessarily have a way out, and who themselves are going to be a little bit shattered as they're going through the story and maybe even looking back on the story a little bit shattered as well. Yeah. Well, because it, you know, it comes down to this kind of crisis about uh, first of all, how are they going to actually, you know, uh, obtain the funds that it takes to get on that ship and go. I mean, this is a, you know, it's one thing to just talk it out and to have a little daydream, you know, there's, you know, the, the scene where this kind of really, this plan comes together is right after they've been making love on this kind of rocky outpost. And it's, it's not explicit, but you hear the sound of, of, um, you know, lovemaking and, and the woman's hand onto hand is holding this uh, Dogon cross, which apparently is, you know, I didn't recognize it as any particular thing, but it's kind of the back piece of his, of his motorcycle or the back rest, I guess, if you, although I'm not sure it's mm-hmm. built to really sustain the weight of a human body, but it's, there is an ornament, but it's a, apparently some kind of a fertility symbol. And so her hand holding it, kind of clutching it, 
um, as you know, they're having this this sexual act, uh, and then you know the cutaways to the surging waves and the pounding, uh, you know, water <laughs> yes. on the rocks. Well, it's that's all very symbolic and suggestive, and but it, but it's it's done with a nice flourish. One moment of clarity, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know what he's doing what's going there. <laughs> on. But in the afterglow of that, they're both laying on this outpost, uh, naked again. You know, not explicitly upfront, but but you know, you can just tell they're sort of in that post-coital moment. And that's when the dream of this plan comes together. They're, they're going to do it. And so they are in this kind of, you know, slightly, you know, elevated state when they when they make the decision. Uh, but then there's the follow through. You know, they're going to have to get a sizable chunk of money. You don't just jump on a ship, land in Europe, and voila, you're you're off. You're, you're going to have to have some funds. You're going to have to, as, as uh, Maury says, <clears throat> you've got to bribe the right people and, and all of that. So you've got to have mm-hmm. cash on hand. Um, so that's, that's sort of the, the middle section of the film. And then the final film after they have kind of scored the loot is whether or not they're going to go through with the plan. So let's, maybe we can talk a little bit about that midsection after Mm -hmm. they've kind of, um, their various, yeah, the various schemes. (laughs) One is to set up a, um, kind of a heist of money that's been obtained at a wrestling match. Well, go ahead. You want to, well, the first one is a very clumsy attempt okay. right he's there's a gambler like a oh yeah you know, yeah a guy who goes out yeah, there the, the, and, and has you pick a card and if you pick the right one you get the money the three card molly so is what i know it is yeah and and he's you yeah. know a trickster right mm-hmm. and i know i understand you're really good at that one david <laughs> well I've, I've built a small <laughs> fortune there, there uh... <laughs> uh, david's the guy behind the cards yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but you know maury feels very convinced oh, i can win this you know i can i can take take this and so he he sits down and bets a thousand francs which he has he has not a one right. you know in his possession and of course he loses and he so he owes <laughs> the guy a thousand francs and the whole town is chasing him you know that's like their first clumsy yeah. you know very naive attempt to get some money but then yes you get into the one that you're talking about the the funds from a wrestling match stealing the the that it's and it's a heist, yeah. It's a fun little, uh, well, funs. It's not set up like a fun heist movie, right? Uh, I say that because it connects to the fun heist movies, but this one's a lot more, again, kind of clumsy yeah. and drawn out too. After after they score the box, man, that's like twenty minutes. I swear. It, yeah, no, it really is. It's but, a very significant, another sort of smallish travelogue, if you will. But yeah, in in the in the you know fleeing the scene of that little card stunt that he pulled there he you know he's running at full tilt and he's a fast runner he's a young vigorous man in in great shape so he's able to evade his pursuers but in that chase that he catches the attention of a cop who's like just kind of giving him the eye and it's like you better come over here and all he really wants is a cigarette he's just the cop is just there sort of yeah, again, flaunting his power and his ability to make people do what he wants them to do just because of the authority of his badge and his gun and his uniform. Uh, but he doesn't really want to harass the kid too much. He just wants you know, to get a get a smoke. And But that's the same cop that uh, they see guarding this uh, these two chests, you know, one of which presumably has all the money. And so they have to make a decision as to which one has got the loot and which one maybe is just sort of a decoy or... Uh, a weight to kind of hold it down or make it a little bit harder to steal and so yeah that that it is it's a very elaborate um setup and and a pursuit and they finally do have a chance to get a hold of that that uh that 
case, even though it's not really shown how they do. <laughs> it's, it's kind of one of those things mm-hmm. where they sort of jump forward. And it's like, don't worry about how we did it. We just got it, you know? So, okay, well, now you've got the money or you've got the box and let's see what's in it. You're right. It it, does, it, it kind of meanders for a while. And then it has a little bit of a almost, I mean, it's a comical payoff, but it feels a little bit anticlimactic as you were thinking this is going to be you know, their score. Well, no, there's, there's one more, um, one more heist that they'll have to have to pull off before they they get get the necessary funds. Uh, but yeah, what did you think about that? It's it's kind of like it kind of it's all a little bit of a shaggy dogish type of thing because you're going down this winding path into this fortress type of uh, structure. Um, I don't. Know, it, I'm still not sure what I even exactly make of it. Well, he never lets it settle into a straightforward narrative. There are other right, people right. involved that you don't really know how they became involved. Are they going to do any double crossing? The cab driver. The cab, yeah. Yep. Because <laughs> what they do is they, they put the trunk on a cab to drive it away. And Maurice following on his motorcycle, but he gets, you know, kind of waylaid. There's the sound, like the sound design of this, of this mm-hmm. film is very, um, it's distracting, but deliberately so. It's, you know, you'll hear the sound of a wreck. And so you're like, oh, yeah. I know what happened. But no, it turns out that was just the sound of a wreck. It, the, the, the trunk is fine. You hear the sound of gunshots when the cab driver is kind of taking the the, the trunk um, away. You know, you hear all these things that make you think you know what's going to happen, even if it would be a surprise, you know, a, yeah. a more typical. Yeah, and that, Go ahead. Well, on that topic, I just want to point out one other kind of interesting use of sound that I only caught on my most recent rewatch, which was this morning. Uh, it's very early in the film where Anta is sitting there doing like her book work. She's writing notes, maybe reading, you know, get putting a, an essay together. And you hear the sound of a baby crying off screen. And that sound of the crying baby goes on for a minute mm-hmm. or two. And there's different cuts, different shots. Showing the dwellings. You never see the baby. Yeah, you're showing the dwellings. But you never see the baby. And Anta never pays any slightest attention to the baby. And I was like, well, that was interesting. I mean, it's kind of basically her lack of interest in maternal things mm-hmm. or maybe what the traditional role of a young woman would be. So that was just since you were bringing up the yeah. sound design, that was one that kind of caught my attention this morning. Yeah. And it's hard to take anything at face value. You know, is there a baby crying that yeah. Anta can hear? Maybe not. You know, I don't know. It might be her soul. <laughs> it might be, re- <laughs> uh, it might be just a reflection of what anyone would do if they were paying attention and living in that, in that, those, those circumstances and knowing how, why they're there. You know, I don't want to suggest that people aren't happy. I, I lived in northern Brazil for a, a long time and lived in places like that. And mm. some of the most delightful people I've ever known and caring and giving. But when you realize why they're in that situation and how little um, can be done to get them out, it's there. there's a, you know, there's a very good reason to weep and or wail even as that infant is doing mm-hmm, at the beginning mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so it is it's it's not clear that these sounds are reflecting something that's happening like the you know the wreck or is that just for us <laughs> you know as the viewers yeah. mm-hmm. did something happen um the the gunshots things like that and then yeah there's a little kind of comedic payoff but it's also a little bit horrific um as he opens up the yeah. trunk and there's not money in there there's like an old skeleton with military placards. A skull, this, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, 
yeah, the, you're right. It's hard to know exactly what to make of it. I'm sure there's some good good thoughts on that. I don't necessarily have them other than to say it's shocking and clearly not was it expected. And again, your mind as a viewer can go to various places to try to make sense of of the shock and the horror that that was felt upon opening that and what it represents when you're, you know, when you see a skull, you know, your own mortality, but also just some, some, you know, futile quest for paradise. Well, yeah. And is this skull, is this some kind of, you know, uh, dark magic thing, some kind Mm -hmm. of ritual violation? Uh, Is this a political prisoner or somebody who was executed and that skull is kind of a warning? Maybe, maybe the money really is under that skull. That skull is there to scare people away. Uh, But yeah, right. The, the, the the taxi driver who's been kind of, you know, accosted or brought into this little plot he all of a sudden finds i'm way over my head and he runs away and is kind of exclaiming almost in a buffoonish manner so maybe i have to check myself and say you know maybe his reaction is much more grounded and reasonable and he's not doing this to to act silly or you know like oh i just saw a ghost mm-hmm. you know this is and so you know th- I i might have a similar reaction uh, based on uh you know my own sort of beliefs or or values set if i was to open a trunk and find human remains in there yeah that would probably freak me out so mm-hmm. uh it's maybe not strictly played for laughs even though it sort of almost felt like that the way he's running and scrambling and stumbling and even running past his own car like get in the car and drive away if you want to he just he's just running out into the woods or into the brush uh kind of almost hysterical or something yeah and you're right thinking of there, there is the potential belief in some witchcraft going on, mm-hmm, um, but mm-hmm. also when you realize that that does happen, you know, often, yeah. and that that may be someone that you knew who did the wrong thing a while back, or you know, there's right. there's a lot of of a lot of people <laughs> in this place, and a lot mm-hmm. of uh, dissent, and a lot of um, personal issues or political issues that could end up you know, putting you there and you don't want to be in the middle of any of those. (laughs) Right. You just want to drive your car and collect your fare and get on with your life. Leave it in that weird, uh, you know, that abandoned kind of uh, ruins and, and get Mm -hmm. on and and pretend it never even happened. Um, Maybe you'll be able to forget someday. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's, that's one of their schemes. And the last one is successful uh, to, you know, to an extent. And, Mm -hmm did you want to you you've been summarizing them so well yeah, in, in, sure. in a good way i don't want to i always trip well, over myself when i'm trying so well yeah i'm, I'm not even, I, I don't know if this is somebody that maury knows I, I i'm again a little bit you know uncertain on, on how the connection is made but they end up going to kind of this mansion uh he's he's a man he's played up as a gay a homosexual but also very wealthy and somewhat decadent um he's got this pool there's these you know, beautiful young people just lounging around. It's very much like kind of a, you know, kind of a hipster scene, a little bit indulgent, um, a little bit uh, uh, carnal, if you will, of, of people just kind of living in the sunshine and the good life and, and um, with, with a, an abundance of, of material goods. So this is, you know, and, and how he's obtained his money or what his 
position in society is. He seems to be pretty well connected. Um, he also seems to feel like he's got a, an angle with with Maury to have a, a sexual encounter with him. Uh, after Maury and Anta have been kind of hanging out, uh, Anta has an opportunity to get into somebody's uh, satchel where she she lifts some cash. Um, she kind of maneuvers herself, and uh, there's a there's a lot of trust going on that people are just kind of hanging out, and uh, it doesn't appear that there's drugs going on maybe there's some alcohol being consumed but it's it's a very kind of uh, you know laid back scene of of just hedonistic pleasure and so you know anta gets a fistful of money um and in the process uh as as maury's allowing himself perhaps somewhat to be seduced or lured in uh, he's doing it with an angle on how can I get the goods from this guy? And so he ends up stuffing a couple suitcases with his bunches of clothing <laughs> and possessions that, that belong to, uh, the man. Uh, he, I think he's a Diop. Uh, he, anyways, he, but he's in the shower and he's inviting Maury to come in and, and shower with him and, you know, he'll give him a back rub. He'll make him feel good. Maury's just kind of biding his time and, and, you know, putting on the stalling tactics while he loads up uh, the, the, the cases with, with this guy's clothing and uh, makes a break for it. And, you know, it's a pretty sloppy escape, but they were able to uh, get control of a vehicle that is being driven by one of the rich guy's chauffeurs. And, um, you know, they, they make their way into town. They, they say, well, the master says, give us a ride. And the, and the chauffeur just basically says, okay, where do you want to go? <laughs> and so it's, you know, this is as normal. far as, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is just how it goes, you know. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, you've got that kind of iconic scene of Maury stripping down to, to bare nakedness. And you see him from behind standing in the front seat of the vehicle, fist up in the air, you know, uh, gloriously exposed <laughs> to the sunlight and to the world for everybody to behold the, uh, uh, the the vigor and power of his of his young naked body there, and and there's this kind of cutaways of flocks of children running along. I mean, it's kind of funny that I just reviewed the Pied Piper <laughs> on my uh, Criterion Reflections podcast, and there's a little bit of a Pied Piperish thing going on here as as the car is driving along, and all these children, uh, through the magic of editing, I should say, are are pursuing and cheering uh, Maury as he flaunts his stuff there in this procession uh, toward the city and towards the port where he and Anta are finally going to make their escape. Um, but the children actually don't follow that vehicle. It's it's completely different shots that are scrunched together on screen. So it's another example of, of uh, Membeti's uh, editing techniques to create an illusion of a reality that isn't really there, but is still very evocative and, and, and pretty profound and, 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 uh, and significant in the statement that he's making here about the children basically wanting to, if not join Maury and Anta in their escape, but cheering him on because the, they see him as kind of a, almost a heroic figure. Or maybe that's Maury imagining yeah. <laughs> the support that he's getting more than actually <laughs> like receiving from the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's his own fantasy pipe dream, which is extended into those scenes of... of uh, when he and Anta supposedly returned to Senegal as as the big money uh, power brokers that uh, that they imagined themselves to be, and he's smoking a cigar, and they're both decked out in 
in fine clothing, showing, you know, peeling off the, the bills, you know, to pay their flunkies. <laughs> it's, it is kind of an indulgent, but, uh, but pretty humorous uh, fantasy <laughs> trip there. Yeah, this, this triumphal entry, it played out in two different times, both of them probably somewhat, in, well, one of them for certain fantasy, and then the other one probably mostly fantasy. And the thing that I like about that is it does feel triumphal, but it certainly doesn't lead to, you know, success uh, or, and I don't mean success because their, their plans are, are uh, disrupted again. They actually do have the opportunity to get on that boat. And this is where the crux of the film comes together. Anta does and can, but Maury can't. And it isn't because right. someone's there blocking him he can't go forward with, with the plan as much as we've not really necessarily seen that he would uh, have any reason not to go. Um, he seems excited to go. There is a collapse of, of will there and he has to retreat while Anta goes on her own to presumably yeah. party. And, and it's, is it because he misses his motorcycle? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, that's mm-hmm. kind of the object, but, but you're right. He's like right there at the threshold. All you got to do is put a couple feet up on those steps and you're on your way there. The, the gateway is right there and he pauses and runs very, you know, very aggressively back into town where, you know, he's apparently looking to get back on his motorcycle which mm-hmm. you know that's is, who he is in a way yeah he that's is him right a dakar citizen who fits in mm-hmm. that margin he's not someone who would go to paris but he's not someone who fits into the other places in dakar he is he has an identity and i find that he can't break away from it when it comes to yeah. it but that motorcycle's been been uh, obtained and taken over by another mm-hmm. guy who's been riding around. And when he finally gets back to his bike, and again, it's very, you've got to suspend your disbelief. How did he happen to just land right on his bike right at this particular moment in, in this sprawling city? But uh, the bike has just been involved in a crash. The, uh, the rider um, has kind of damaged himself there's an ambulance a crowd gathered around and they're taking him away with what looks like a pretty significant leg injury there's blood on the on the pavement the uh you know the the bike is pretty wrecked up but it's not destroyed i mean it presumably could be salvaged repaired and all of that but that's kind of where we're left off he's back on his bike and uh it's it's a little bit worse for the wear yeah, but you get the sense that Maury is going to be right back up there the next day or as soon as that bike is made drivable again. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe he'll find a new Anta. Maybe Anta will, will go on to pursue her education in Paris and and do something beyond what uh, uh, Semben's protagonist in Black Girl was able to accomplish. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe there's a, there's a hope. Maybe there's a, a sense of progress. But it's really, you know, Membeti putting us face to face with the plight that these young people are, are facing uh, without really offering much of a uh, vision for what that solution might be. We're, we're left to speculate and play out the string of circumstances that these characters might face all on our own. And there's a, an interesting article in BBC culture that I'll, I'll put in the show notes, but I think this is where it talks about going back to, you know, to vi- revisit um, a few decades later in the 90s, and that that's actually kind of how it 
played out. Um, yeah, it says here uh, the the that his characters shared the same fate as Mori and Anta in Tukibuki. Marem Niang, who was Anta, moved and settled in the West. And Magai Niang, I'm sorry, I, I'm sure I'm saying those wrong, but uh, that's Mori, went back to herding Zebu in Dakar. Wow. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and there, there, I guess there's a documentary, uh, Mille Soleil, that was in 2013 by Mati Diop, um, who is Mambeti's niece, and kind of goes through a little bit of that uh, that they found um, had happened to the, to these to these people, you know, the real people, um, movie stars, who you know, one went yeah. back to to hurting uh, Zebu <laughs> for the oxen yeah. that we see throughout the film. Well, you know, I, again, uh, my lack of knowledge of of where African cinema went from here or how it existed as an industry or as a a source of cultural you know communication and engagement is is very limited and I you know so I have to really modestly step back and just mm-hmm. say this is really impressive I've definitely enjoyed and, and been somewhat enlightened by the films of Semben that I've been able to see but my understanding of how these cultures have developed or what, uh, or even how they how a film like this was received. Was this, is this something that was, you know, catering more to the art house intelligentsia? Did the common Senegalese people watch this and see themselves in this film? Uh, I don't, I really don't know. Um, obviously it's, it's helpful for me and armchair viewers like uh, like myself to to get in touch with with this film and to recognize that um, you know there's great artistry and expression and culture being created uh, in Africa and has and that that's been the case for a long time and and Senegal I guess to to take a more particular look because Africa is a huge place so mm-hmm. forgive me for speaking in such general terms but those are the those are the filters that have sort of been created for us in the West that we, you know, we, we view movies as uh, Hollywood and then there's the whole European thing, but African culture uh, and Senegalese culture has its own expression. And uh, this seems like a pretty significant statement from that, but it would, I'm certain benefit from getting more of, of its surrounding context to understand, you know, the impact that it made um, to me. Uh, it's, it's definitely always, helpful and and somewhat sobering to think about the the legacy of colonialism and how many millions of lives it's impacted in in so many different ways i mean even even those processions of the uh you know the fantasies of of maury you know envisioning his triumphant return well the model that he's envisioning is obviously an emulation of the real (laughs) real thing that was being displayed by senegalese uh leaders the the politicians uh even even some of the portraits of the audience in the wrestling match where you see these men in their kind of whatever the the garments are called with their or their hats you can see the signs of of class structure and, and power and dominance there um not that it's inherently always a bad thing uh, every society has its structures and ranks if you will um but but there is the question of you know how are we gonna you know create a more equitable society given the situation as it stands and the obstacles that 
prevent us from making meaningful reforms. So, you know, that's that's a universal struggle that every society has to deal with. But it was very enjoyable and um, insightful to me to to just kind of see this this portrayal of of a society that feels very different, but has many connection points to the world mm-hmm. that I've been living in all my life. And in a way, even on a very personal level, you know, a society, there's familiarity there, but also mm-hmm. what these characters themselves are struggling with. Now, I can't imagine everything, of course, you know, it's quite yeah. different from my upbringing, but they are still, and, and uh, I think a lot because of the editing and these funky things that <laughs> that, are, that Mambetti is doing with the the film creation, you can get in their heads just a little bit and see dreams and you see fears, you see hopes dashed and, and it, it becomes very intimate in a way that I can, you know, we, I think we can also connect with it's, it's, it's a wonderful film. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we probably can move on to red ace. And I think that's a good connection point mm -hmm. that you just mentioned there, that, that kind of the hopes and dreams and aspirations, because I think that's, that is kind of what links these two together Yeah, and the waves, Uh, without really feeling like it's and the waves. That's right. Yeah. Without, (laughs) without really forcing it too much. um, I don't know that they were paired for any particular thematic reasons, but uh, you know, you put two films back to back and you find those parallel points and Mm -hmm. that is kind of your segue from one to the other, right? Yeah, I actually found a lot of connections, I think, between these two films to an extent. I mean, so so Red Ace. Red Ace is the is the the next film on on the in the set, and um, I'm just gonna pull it out here. So it's a 1936 film from Mexico. Again, uh, credited as directed by, and it was directed by Fred Zinnemann and Emilio Gomez Muriel. Um, but this one is a very short film. It's about an hour. I think it's exa- almost exactly an hour, if I remember right. And it takes place on the, the Gulf of Mexico in a fishing village in at this time period. And fishermen having a very hard time making ends meet and who are being, you know, kind of pushed under and not given their fair share by the their boss you know it, it's a it's a very social film um and you can see its its roots in the 1930s and i think it's fairly straightforward when it comes to what it's saying um oh, yeah. almost yeah. almost I'm almost tempted to say very familiar because it's a it's a story that we've seen play out time and time again can we all come together to make our our lot better and, you know, there's some violence that says, no, you can't, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm, the person mm-hmm. who's in charge owns the guns, too. And yet do we have the spirit to to persist together? You know, it, it's it's it can feel a little simplistic even. But I think there's a lot of, of, of good stuff going on in this film, too. And a lot of that kind of personal uh, those personal images it's quite different, though. I mean, Tukibuki is is made by a master filmmaker, and Red Ace is 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 a little bit more unprofessional when it comes to the acting. Of course, they they use mm-hmm. unprofessional actors in both films, but in this one, I think it's a little more apparent. And again, its message is a lot more straightforward. But uh, yeah, I'm very curious about your your connection yeah. with Red Ace because it's. You know, on the one hand, I can see it being dismissed as, oh, it's just a propaganda film. 
and fairly simple at that. You know, oh yes, I should I should unite with my fellow workers to make the world better. Um, <laughs> yes. but in the face of this terrible villain, you know, we will overcome. We will, you know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and and speeches and speechifying and you know, a fairly a fairly dramatic beginning that's easy to get on board with. You know, you can it can it could be passed over. But this was kind of a legendary film for a while because it was such, yeah. in such danger of being lost, but it would be displayed at times and it was censored and, and even in, in the creation um, modified from its original, mm-hmm. you know, heft and, and punch quality. And it, it, it's a, it's a well made uh, film that almost feels like a documentary at the same time as as it can feel simplistic. There's so many angles to pull it out of that and see the nuance. So, yeah. Well, okay. So, yeah. There's there's a there are many very commendable factors here, uh, but I will say, yeah, this is this may feel like if you just pop pop it in and just watch it at the surface level, it may feel a little dry. Like you said, Trevor, kind of uh, straightforward, even a bit didactic uh, and simplistic in it and kind of hammering it home. It's political message. But I think you step back and, and just put this thing in context. I mean, we're talking about 1936. Okay. So this, I mean, it's not like sound film was a brand new invention by that point, but it's still pretty early in the sound era. Uh, it's a Mexican film, which is fairly significant because you just don't have access to a lot of films from Mexico at this time, or at least most of us don't. I guess if you really wanted to go on a quest and find it, you know, maybe there's more out there than I'm giving it credit for. But, you know, to, and this is very authentic, you know, I mean, it feels like these are the real people living in this village, this seaside fishing village. Um, cause they are, this is how they live. They are exactly. <laughs> they, they basically just set up the camera and say, okay, guys, show us what you do. Show us how you haul in these nets. And, and when the fish are running, how do you make your living? Um, the other, there are so many fascinating things there. You know, this, this was a film that was commissioned by the Mexican government, <laughs> which is fascinating in itself to think about because the, the message is one of, pro-worker solidarity against the bosses and basically ridiculing and and uh, chastising those people who are in positions of advantage in that society, both politicians and the business owners. You know, Don... Uh, Don Selmo. Uh, his name? Don Anselmo, right. He, he is like sort of the big man who he almost single-handedly controls the market in this village as far as how much the fishermen are going to get paid for for their harvest for the fish that they bring in and you know to think of a government sort of telling its own citizens you know what you all need to organize and you need to sort of say no to the politicians <laughs> these people in push power back. yeah well, well i'm not used i mean obviously the the soviet uh style of filmmaking and you know provided that but in the west I'm used to seeing that from more fringe type of filmmakers or even filmmakers who would very soon thereafter face persecution for their leftist views by the powers that be. And so the fact that this, you know, film ends with a big seal of the, of the government of Mexico and that this was produced uh, in anticipation of a whole series of films, it didn't turn out that way. And this is another thing that sometimes the, uh, you know, the left, when it when it gets the reins of governance, is not always the most, um, you know, 
pro- proficient at, at realizing its schemes. I mean, not to get too deep into the politics right here and there, but um, but it's really fascinating just to have that. You have the involvement of Fred Zinneman, who, of course, went on to become a, a hugely mm-hmm. uh, a successful director in Hollywood. I mean, From Here to Eternity, uh, High Noon, um, what else is uh, A Man for All Seasons, uh, The Day of the Jackal. I mean, he went on to have a really long career. Uh, this is a 1936 film, and he's making top level films all the way up into, into the 70s, you know? So uh, I guess his last film was even in 1982 as a director. So, uh, you know, he was a contemporary of, of Billy Wilder and Robert Siodmak, one of these guys who kind of came over to the West after the Nazis came to power in the early 1930s over in Germany. So, you know, a fascinating involvement uh, at this point. I mean, he's still very young and relatively, I mean, pretty much an unknown, almost like a refugee. He's, he's but, in his uh, 20s. Just, yeah. So, so no indication of the triumphs that were ahead for him. But uh, to think that he was involved in, in this very seminal project and then that, that sensibility and, and, and uh, you know, his, his identification with, with kind of the movement represented in this, in this film's, you know, kind of advocacy is very fascinating just to sort of see his name attached to this project. And, and he was not just a bystander either. So, yeah, and there's more. I'm not going to just d- drop every quality, <laughs> notable thing right in this opening monologue. But you, you're right. I mean, my first time watching it was kind of like, yeah, you know, a nice artifact of history. Glad that it was able to be preserved. But, the, you know, putting aside some of the the wooden aspects or the fact that you, you maybe have to lean in a little bit to get the full value. Once you do, I think it's very rewarding to just kind of recognize what's being put together here and, and how unique and memorable it really is when, when you sort of assess what did I just watch in this very brief hour? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's pretty high impact and, and, and even how it sort of sets the stage for the emergence of uh, neorealism, which is again, seen as the Italian invention. This really has a lot of those elements like right there, right in front of you. Um, that you would see from uh, Rossellini and others in the late 1940s. Well, and you, I I didn't really, I don't know a ton about Fred Zinnemann other than I've seen many Mm -hmm. of his movies, but Mm -hmm. this comes from Wikipedia. So I'm sure it's just spot on, but it does say, (laughs) and and here's the evidence. He, Mm -hmm. he was among the first directors to insist on using authentic locations um, mm-hmm. And for mixing stars with civilians to give his films more realism, it's not talking about Red Ace there. It's just talking about his early early work, and Red Ace mm-hmm. shows. But you know that that's pretty clear. I think a thing that strikes me with Red Ace is I do feel like the story itself is straightforward, oh. and and easy to to understand. I mean, at the beginning you have a, a one of the fishermen, and his son t- is is sick. He has no money to take him to the hospital. And so he goes to Don Anselmo asking for almost an advance, like, hey, you know, I don't have the money to do this. My son is sick. He will die if I can't get him to the hospital. Can yeah, you... you get this since he's done this before? Like he does that's the last thing he wants to do, right. but he has no and he other doesn't, choice. He doesn't like Don Anselmo. You know, there's right, right. there's no no desire to do this, but it's it's the last resort. And so he takes it and is denied. And the next thing we know, we're watching a funeral procession with a very little casket, you know, um, and it's, 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 it's sad. It's, it's, it's dramatic. And 
that spurs this particular worker, especially when the next day we see all these scenes of them gathering in the fish and they get paid less than ever for their mm-hmm. harvest. Oh, you know, fish prices, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it, it's not that bad. Um, yeah. And they've I don't know struggling. a lot about Mex. Yeah, I don't know a lot about Mexican currency in the 1930s, but uh, you always wanted pesos. You never wanted centavos. Centavos I mean... are not, 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 you're not getting a lot for a day's work if it's paid in centavos, right. yeah. And so, and they've been struggling to find fish, but they bring in a great harvest and they're still basically like, oh, well, we're going to pay you the same as if you'd brought in almost nothing. Um, and that keeps going. And so he organizes, he tries to, you know, he's got a speech. He, he wants to say, you know, we don't have to take this. And if we all come together, we can fight against this. Now, of course, there are those in the group who agree, and 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 there's a lot. This is a pretty big group. I would say, you know, forty men, maybe even more. Yeah, um, and presumably all of the able-bodied men mm-hmm. of the village. I mean, this is the whole bunch of them right there. Yeah, it's not like ten people um, trying to to agree on this. It, it's everybody who can work, and it is a significant workforce. But then there are the others who are like, no, I just need to get my money at the end of the day. I can't have that disrupted um, in this way. And so there's no unity there and it goes horribly wrong. Their first attempt mm-hmm. to to kind of put up a little bit of a fight. And then, you know, he gets shot. He gets killed, the main the main guy. And that unites them. You know, we're, we got paid even less. And so we're going to come together and, you know, it ends on that kind of hopeful note, which like you said, it's really striking to see in a 1930s film commissioned by the government. <laughs> right, know, right, rebellion right. works guys. And, uh, if you, yeah, but, but you're setting up a martyr situation mm-hmm. where, you know, if only we had known, if only we had come together, maybe this guy would still be with us. But since we can't turn back time, we're going to, you know, yeah, follow his heroic example and we're going to make it work this time. So and that's, it really it is, ends with yeah. the waves. You know, we <laughs> yeah. talked about that in and this flotilla of boats, men rowing these muscular sinewy guys yeah. rowing and the wave crashing. And it's like kind of aiming towards this almost like palatial type of structure. Yeah. It's like they're going to run it down. It's and a show symbolic of a, of a mm-hmm. tidal force that's going, you know, nothing can stop it. You can't fight the wave. Mm-hmm. And that's where it ends, you know? Um, and so there's no real sense as to, did they succeed? Cause those soldiers have guns, you know, you can, as yeah, I'm sitting there, yeah. I'm like, Oh no, this is not going to go over well. Cause we've seen it play out in, in many times mm-hmm. when it doesn't. Um, but it is a step in that direction to say, no, we can't sit back and, and, and take it. But, um, but that's, that's the storyline. Um, but the, so you can get through, I could see them filming that in a few days, but this took, they, they planned on, I think four months and it took six partially Mm -hmm. because they're, you know, the people in charge are fighting about how best to tell this story and they're getting pushed back because, politicians have changed you know who who commissioned the film is eventually replaced by someone else so there's a right. lot of co- how militant do you get mm-hmm. you know how aggressive well, that um, scene doesn't that actually fit our fit our bill mm-hmm. you need to tone that down but i also think you know how what a technical achievement to get these cameras yeah. on these boats and see these point of view shots mm-hmm. of these guys out fishing um you know it it is it is marvelous to it's really well filmed uh, by Paul Strand mm-hmm. and it's, it looks, it looks amazing. You know, like I can't do that just by going out with my phone, <laughs> you know, it, it's really <laughs> right. well set up, but in these, these kind of 
um, crazy situations out in the out in the ocean, you know, on the Gulf of Mexico. It it, it must have been um, technically uh, very challenging to do, but it, it works. And and that's another angle that I found really appealing to to watch was this isn't just a you know it's a straightforward story, but it isn't told with just um, you know on a stage. No, it's it's the framing and the the context, the 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 nature of photography, if you will, mm-hmm. the the close ups of the of the different uh, workers, um, you know, is it, very noble, very very inspirational, um, because you're getting a sense of not just you know the plight of the workers, but the but the beautiful setting and and the you know it's not exactly a paradise because of the difficult uh, living conditions, but. It really is, you know, very powerful and, and and very engaging. And again, this is black and white. The film is definitely banged up. Uh, they don't have access to all the best materials, so they had to do a lot of restoration from positive prints. And so there's still going to be elements of film damage coming through. But mm-hmm. but you just look at the compositions and and the the use of sky and and uh, you know lo- local flora. Uh, plant life and and the 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 beauty of of the men you know the the workers and, and just the common people um they're they're given a lot of respect by by how they're positioned within the frame um you know they 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 are almost cast in kind of a heroic light which again is part of the a film's um you know messaging we have to remember this is this is a film that was primarily aimed at an audience of pretty basic working class people you know they are not you know uh dilettantes who are looking for you know nuanced types of storytelling or you know give me something i've never seen before this this movie wants to get across a very basic message organize for your own good stand up for your rights demand to be paid a share uh, that is worthy of the work that went into it. Even even lobby to you know have control of the fish that you harvest so that you can uh, make straight up trades with people mm-hmm. who make other products, you know, corn and meat and cloth. And they show uh, these than, people working too. So right. it shows again yeah. that filmmaking going on behind the scenes. Exactly this this montage style that that is suggesting uh, what's happening or what's being spoken of at the same time making those connections by, you know, again, combining and juxtaposing images, but doing it in a way that, that doesn't involve monetizing everything. Maybe we can do bulk trades or, or some other kind of means of, but, but, but for sure, get a fair uh, compensation for your work. Um, that's a message that is, you know, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily appealing to uh, film scholars or people who enjoy cinema as an art form. <laughs> They're really trying to talk about, you know, this is something that is for your own good as a working person and as somebody who's providing for your family and trying to create conditions of prosperity and, and, and just even basic health and stability in, in your villages. So, yeah, it is important to kind of keep in mind that the, the concerns of this film are much more fundamental than, you know, uh, camera angles or or some of the niceties that make a film stand out amongst the piles of other films that we might watch over the course of a week or a month or a year or a lifetime (laughs) yeah and at the same time i mean i'll I'll admit i don't have as much to say about this one as tukibuki but 
and and it's short too so there's yeah. it's it's not like it's demanding to be more than than a, a really compelling um up up in upfront and realistic uh portrait of this village and some of the struggles they're going through and some of the hopes again going back to Tukibuki the hopes for something better in the future uh given the the structure that is certainly not in, interested in giving them anything better um for the future and um Really, you know, I, I, I'd seen that before and hadn't ever gone back to it uh, until now, you know, in preparation mm-hmm. for this episode and really enjoyed watching it again. And, and par- part of the part of the reason was, again, just looking at this as, you know, this is almost a century ago. Yeah. And things maybe have changed somewhat and other things haven't. But the thing that I love about it is we're watching the these people who are real fishermen real people in this village coming together to make this film what an mm-hmm. awesome thing to see and to witness yeah and, and to see the places and you know again this isn't on a stage this is this is real these were their concerns this was the the way to tell this story and i loved loved that aspect of it um, mm-hmm. And it reminded me a little bit going back this time, uh, I think about a year ago, Criterion put on the Criterion channel um, a bunch of these little short documentaries by Vittorio De Seta, not De Sica, mm-hmm. <laughs> De Seta. Right, 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 right. They're like 10, 12 minutes each. I think there's maybe a dozen of them or something. I can't remember. And they're little documentaries shot in Italy at various you know, for, for it, it giving various events or types of work that are just gorgeous to watch. They're beautifully shot and realistic. And this just, I love these kinds of films that can, you you can see that going on. You can get into the, into these places that are, some of them still exist, but many of them don't. Certainly none of the people involved here, you know, they've, they're done with their time on earth. Oh yeah. Sure. <laughs> and so what do we, what can we learn from them and, and, and their aspirations and, and their work and their day to day. It's so nice to get into that, that frame of mind. I'm not watching a strong narrative, but I am watching right. this beautiful look at work and mm-hmm. society from, from this time period. Yeah. I think just the fact that this, these, um, these shots have been preserved and that you can sort of, you know, for a few moments, step back into this world that is certainly different. I mean, if you go back to that village now, it's going to be completely developed. And even though there might be guys who go out on the water pulling in fish, it's not going to be all the men of the village. And this is what we do as a solidarity of, uh, of men who kind of have this common, you know, common trade. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, these, these little relics of, of, you know, bygone times, I think, are increasingly precious and valuable as as uh, as time goes on, because we're just that much further away from the world. But we still have these very compelling records of what life was like. And you're right, just that, just the ability to to tap into that, uh, the lives of, of ordinary working people who weren't especially glamorous or historically noteworthy, uh, but still, you know deserving of, of consideration and even appreciation for, for the lives that they've led. Um, there are some other interesting elements. I think the music is another oh, pretty yeah, significant yeah. piece. Uh, Sylvester Revoltus, um, you know, I, again, people much more, uh, 
informed about the history of 20th century, you know, uh, symphonic music maybe have a lot more to say than I do, but uh, I don't, I don't have any insight on this particular director, but the music itself is a, another big piece of the, of the impact of this film. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's pretty like incredibly dramatic and, and um, boisterous and, and strong uh, just because it comes on with such force over what is in some ways kind of a mundane uh, activity, you know, uh, but it, but it really does elevate the, the scale of what's happening here and sort of magnifies the, the dramatic intensity of the conflict between the working men, the boss. And there's also that, that crooked politician, uh, which is another interesting element. He, he's the guy who actually commits the murder, uh, but also from a place of concealment and manages to cover his track. So again, that's mm. that's almost getting into you know blatant propaganda there, making out the politician mm-hmm. an active murderer of the <laughs> organizer, you know, skulking in the shadows so he can take out the main guy. And again, fascinating to me that a government is putting out this message that says, don't trust the politicians. They, they will tell yeah. you anything they want that you want to hear uh, in order to get your vote. And, and we're actually promoting cynicism <laughs> about, about political uh, would be aspiring leaders there, which is like really almost paradoxical. Um, but it, it shows me that people who were behind this project recognized that they almost had felt a duty to warn <laughs> the kind of uh, people who want to get into that place of political advantage should not be extended too much hope or trust because like we see all the time, uh, demagoguery uh, knows no bounds. If it'll get you vote or, or legitimacy or popular support, people will say anything uh, to, to make you think they're on your side. So yeah, so the politics and the music are, are a couple of really interesting um, and significant notes that make this film stand out. Well, it talks about uh, the music in the essay in the Criterion booklet that it was praised by none other than uh, Aaron Cop- Copland in, mm-hmm. in, in, a, in the New York Times. He, he says, anyone who is interested in the development of music in the Western Hemisphere is now able to hear the music that Revueltas has written for Paul Strand's memorable film of Mexico. And that's significant. And yeah, it does. It stands out. But going back to the politics of even getting this film yeah. made, I love this bit from the essay. Um, besides the ongoing strand uh, Zinnemann tension, the production was beset by numerous other problems. Money was tight and was doled out by the SEP. That's the, the government mm-hmm. program that was funding funding the effort in small increments, a bureaucratic policy that took its toll on cast and crew morale. <laughs> you almost <laughs> wonder how much of that comes out in some yeah, of the, yeah. in some of these scenes. Like, uh, we got to make this even more powerful, guys, because we're dealing with it even in the making of this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I thought that that's kind of fun. But but a lot of work <laughs> yeah. went into making this. They had to ship the For film sure. up to Los Angeles to get it developed, and it wasn't you know it was finished in 1934. Filming was but it didn't come out for a few years again, because there's so much change. I mean, Mexico itself was in a post-revolutionary state of rebuilding and, you know, similar to Tukibuki, wasn't quite sure what it was and which path to go down. So you get something like this that stands out and is its own unique and surprising, surprisingly subversive um, bit of propaganda almost against its own creators. So (laughs) kind of, uh, uh, I'm glad that it exists and again, almost didn't. Um, 
the original negatives were lost, the, but the the World Cinema Project put put together what they could, and and I think it looks great. Yeah, it seems like it's it's the complete thing. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. there's some frames lost here or there, but it never feels like it's jumpy. There's no yeah. noted missing scene. So, uh, you know, talk about heroic. Lines, you know? it's, it's yeah, oh for sure. Some stuff that uh, you know they they couldn't probably change without deleting what they wanted to save. You know, so. I'm sure it's a very complex process of, of deciding how to clean these these frames up, and I'm I'm sure they took it as far as they possibly could to give us the best uh, image available, uh, given the technology at their disposal. Uh, one other name to mention, you you had already referenced Paul Strand mm-hmm. um, as he's kind of like uh, the photographer. Uh, he did cinematography, but he's probably best known for his his more static images. But as I was watching this, uh, without knowing about Paul Strand's involvement uh, mm-hmm. right up front, it reminded me a lot of a documentary called Native Land that's part of the Paul mm-hmm. Robeson box set. Have you had a chance to see that one at all, Trevor? Yeah, or I have. Gotten much into, yeah, that, was, that is actually one of my very favorite films from the Paul Robeson set, talking about another daunting, uh, you know, movie packed set that we'll have to break down probably someday <laughs> um but native land is a film that was uh, from the 1940s and actually actually made in the world war ii years uh, but again a very strong pro-labor uh putting putting the the workers movements in the context of patriotic american history which is not always how it was looked at by certainly on the political right but that was a very moving film it's been some years since i watched it but strand was also highly involved in that one as well so it was kind of cool to see the uh the connection lines between countries made in or films made in two different countries you know you know almost a decade apart you know if you figure 34 is when this was filmed Mm -hmm. 42 is when native land came out and he had filmed manhattan which I oh that's right oh he did that is one too. that okay, part yeah. of one of the kino like rarities I've seen it and yeah I can't remember it's, where it's I have kind it, of but... it's like in those experimental film collections I really like that one yeah the Criterion Channel's had it on a few times um, off and on you know kind of a, an impressionistic look at the city of Manhattan and the buildings uh, just the imagery from shooting the structures there in, in different creative ways yeah. yeah at the time that Red Ace was made he was probably the most well known person involved in it uh, that yeah. you know mm-hmm. copland in his new york times thing about the music says it's paul strand's film <laughs> <laughs> yeah so. he's just the camera guy that's all you know yeah um another couple names that stick out in the writing credits you might have noticed trevor john dos passos and leo Hurwitz were credited as doing the english titles of course dos passos pretty important yeah i actually American had not writer. paid attention yeah to that. that that's that yeah. slipped past me <laughs> yeah i don't know if it was mentioned in the essay i just i'm looking at the imdb page but the fact that he was personally involved in hmm translating this into english which meant that this was a film that did have an american audience and apparently uh, i think the essay did say yeah. it was pretty well received yeah. uh, by american viewers of the time again the 30s were definitely a more progressive era politically and there was a sense that um something had to be done to to secure the needs of working people around the world uh, including mexicans and, and everywhere else and of course we're still in the the depths of the of the depression uh world war is kind of lurking uh, you sort of see the fascist versus communist things happening in europe and other places i think the spanish civil war was was ongoing so there were a, a lot of ferment um uh, 
And even though Mexico was not nearly in the, the crosshairs of all of that conflict, uh, there were important statements being made. And I think it's just, you know, putting this film in the context of those very uh, tumultuous years is another, you know, another item to its credit to say, yeah, this is, this is definitely um, a cultural document that should be viewed and recognized if you're looking at just what was going on in the world uh, in the 1930s, uh, you know, a decade that in some ways really set the stage for even many of the conflicts that are surrounding us and occupying headlines these days. All right. Well, David, do you, do you have anything else you wanted to, to add on, on either think, film at this point? No, I think I've hit all my key points there. I didn't have a list made, but that's kind of what's <laughs> in my head. But yeah, I, another delightful conversation, Trevor. Really enjoy always getting together with you. And hopefully people who listen in uh, to like this, you know, bounce ideas back and forth. I've gotten some, some good insights from this as well. And always curious to know what other people think about these movies, because you're right. They're, they're not the, uh, you know, they're, they're not the, the fodder that we uh, typically focus on, but it's great to pull them out of the case, put them in the player, give them a look and some thought and uh, really enjoyed the the process of doing that over the past week or so. So mm-hmm. thanks for getting me in. Oh, I, I'm I'm grateful too, and and so we'll be back here in a couple of weeks uh, to focus on the next uh, two films in the set. That's Ritwick Gatox, A River Called, and I have no idea, Titans. Titas. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. yeah. That's a 1973 film from India, uh, Bangladesh, and then Metin Erksan's Dry Summer, a Turkish film from 1964. So I'm excited to talk about those as well. They they have some similarities with this what we've talked about today but in in many ways they're they're of course their own things so looking forward to that very much so yeah so i will definitely revisit them i've seen them both but it's been years and years so uh looking forward <laughs> to the revisit and uh, the subsequent conversation Trevor. so thanks again 